Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respects to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast, where we bring you discussions related to the books, films music and ideas that make up our library's collection. Today, we're pleased to present Chloe Hooper and Tony Birch, two award-winning authors who discussed Chloe's latest work, The Arsonist, on October 22, 2018. Best known for The Tall Man, in The Arsonist, Chloe brings her award-winning writing to an investigation of the Black Saturday bushfires and the man responsible for setting them. This is an edited recording with some audience questions revoiced by Yarra Library staff members. We are very pleased tonight to welcome author Chloe Hooper. One of Chloe's earlier books, The Tall Man, Death and Life on Palm Island from 2008, won the Victorian, New South Wales, Western Australian and Queensland Premier's Literary Awards, as well as the John Button Prize for Political Writing and a Ned Kelly Award for Crime Writing. Tonight, she is here to talk about her new book, The Arsonist, which was released just yesterday. So hot off the press and very exciting for you to be opening it up. Yeah, so Chloe will be in conversation with Tony Birch, himself a well-known author. I have to mention shadow boxing because it's about growing up in Fitzroy and we are all sitting in Fitzroy this evening, but more recent works include Ghost River and Common People. So please make them very welcome. Um, thank you very much. Just to extend the acknowledgement of country, um, I also want to pay my respects to um, the Wurundjeri people in particular, who are the um, traditional owners on the country on which we stand. But I do want to extend that acknowledgement and respect to all people here tonight. Thank you so much for coming. And I, I want to pay respect to your elders and your communities as well. Um, I think it's very important to do that. Um, I want to thank um, Yarra Libraries for asking me to be in conversation with Chloe, who I've known for many years and certainly read and taught her work. So I feel very honoured to be given the opportunity to, to be in conversation, and particularly in this room, which is where I learned to read when we, this was the old Fitzroy Library in the early 1960s. I also um, want to say at the outset that when you're asked to do these events and when you get the opportunity to read the work, I always do so with enthusiasm. Um, I always do so with the view that making sure that both the writer and the uh, the audience get value out of the evening. The cream on the cake, of course, is to read such a, a remarkable book. I wasn't surprised to be taken by the wonderful quality of the book, the, the driving narrative of the book, um, the incredible story that's being told that really is, you know, to, it might sound like a cliche, but at times a wonderful old-fashioned page-turner but a wonderfully crafted and and structured book. And there are a couple of the issues that I want to take up with Chloe. Um, The other thing I suppose to talk about is in relationship to the Black Saturday fires. And this fire is talked about as the forgotten fire, the fire in the Latrobe Valley, because there was a lot of focus on the fires um, up around the King Lake area. And I didn't know if um, I'd been asked because I'd been a firefighter for 10 years before I went to Melbourne University, which is probably not the case. I didn't know that. But also that um, a very close friend of mine lost um, two houses on the one plot at Flowerdale on the day of the fires, and and he went missing. And um, 
we thought that he had, had, had died in the fires and we went searching for him and found him and we got permission to go back into the fire zone a couple of days later because of an item that had been left um, on the land that he lived. And I'd, I had been a firefighter for 10 years and I'd been to a lot of very ferocious fires over the years but never had I witnessed something as 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 incredibly violent and ferocious of those fires which which Chloe talks about at length and when I was thinking about this night and writing my questions out this is one of the items we found at Flower Day which is a full-size bottle reduced to this site because the intensity of the heat that it experienced with that in mind I think um, the qualities of this book are such that Chloe has this remarkable ability to take us with microscopic detail into the site of fires, into the house of the, at the time, the alleged arsonist, into conversations held in the back seat of cars, in a courtroom, um, walking down the street in, in, a, in a country town in the valley. And it's a remarkable skill. And I think the, the, the talent of an incredibly great craftsperson to, to do that I have said that I that I taught Chloe Hooper's work, and um, I taught a lot of nonfiction. So I used to teach, as Chloe would be aware of, you know, we we would teach the whole notion of what was called new journalism from the late nineteen sixties onwards up until the present day. And there are there is a type of writer that is often celebrated, and it, and it's a writer who produces what is often called that experience of immersion. So the writer is present as a as a subjective active character in the writing and there are some celebrated writers who who produce that sort of writing like Hunter S. Thompson to name an obvious person but many writers mimic that and and do it I think um, fairly poorly. The book that I taught though that I loved and I think it's the best book in the sense of really remarkable non-fiction is John Hersey's book Hiroshima and what I think is the remarkable quality of that book is that you're dealing with such a catastrophic event, which is the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima in 1945. And Hersey had the ability in that book, again, to take you, to give you such intimate detail and to put you so close to the, to the site of this catastrophe, but he is never present. There is never the intrusion of the author. So it is as if he is acting as this, as, this, as this lens, as this conduit between yourself and the work. And I think, Chloe, to, to start, I think for me, it's, I haven't read a book since that does that as well as your book. And what the, so the first question I actually want to ask you is, in a way, when you're approaching this book, so when you're thinking about technique, structure, craft, voice, what decisions did you make that would, in my sense, provide that intimacy for a reader but not get in the way? Uh, look, thank you for such lovely words, Tony. They mean the world coming from you and, and how special to be in this room where we feel your history coming through. I love these questions too because they're, they're so writerly and um, it's really nice to be sort of in a, drawn into a conversation about craft um, you know, I, I'm always interested in in those um, in any detail that can sort of take you immediately into somebody's life, and sort of. T I mean, I, I like to tell a story in in a sentence or two sentences, in a way. I mean, and so I'm always looking for those intimate moments which will do as much duty on the page as they can. 
I want to go to I want to go some specific in, instances of, of that in a moment because again I suppose I don't want to exclude you from this conversation but as a writer you, you think how does she how does she do that you know or that's remarkable that she's doing that so I want to go into that there's another question though that I think is a general one and I think this would be of great interest to any reader of the book yeah um, I used to teach after Black Saturday I when I so I taught a general non-fiction course at Melbourne University for years. And one, one of the weeks that we would spend, we would use examples of writers and usually established writers. So often it was novelists or journalists commissioned to write on particular subjects. One of the areas we looked at was the Black Saturday fires. So yeah. there were several novelists who were sent up into the hills yeah. to write pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then along with Andrew Rule, who's a mm. crime journalist at mm. the Herald Sun who lost his house in the fire. And I would do companion pieces which were on Hurricane Katrina. Um, Don Watson had a piece um, um, from his book on America. Uh Um, Andrew O'Hagan, who's a great um, essayist. But but the question I would ask of students is to consider what are the ethics here? What What are the ethics or what is our responsibility as a writer when we are going into a community and and you deal with this, where there has been great suffering, yeah. great pain and loss mm. of, of houses, of family, mm. of of pets, yes. of land, yeah. and then a writer comes yeah. into town yeah. um, with the typewriter yeah. to tell their story. Yeah. So I, I'm interested here, one, is to what extent, how do you consider that in a, in a work like this? And certainly with Tall Man as, as well. Yeah. And secondly... What sort of responses did that elicit from those people who had gone through this horrific experience? Yeah. Okay, so maybe we should backtrack to the heart of this story. Um, there were there were hundreds of fires on on Black Saturday, and five of those were fatal. Of those, um, initially three appeared to have been deliberately lit. Uh, on the Thursday after Black Saturday, the arson squad arrested a man in the Latrobe Valley who it appeared had deliberately lit two fires on the edge of a uh, eucalypt plantation, which then burnt out of control f- over 30,000 hectares of, um, of plantation, bushland, private property, and killed 11 people. I read about his arrest and I remember the build-up to Black Saturday and all of the public warnings and I think that a lot of people wondered whether or not that would bring out those who were kind of firebugs and um, so my question was why you know who becomes an arsonist and why and um, this this story sort of stayed with me and I wanted to um, find out the answers to those questions but ethically this is I think very complicated terrain and this is a very painful document for a lot of people and I've dealt closely with some of those people in the last uh, five years and they have mixed feelings about this book but I mean some of them are, are, are positive feelings and it's a question that I, I struggle with a lot. I think that if you don't look closely at some of these difficult uh, subjects, then you lose a chance to actually know more about the country that we live in and about our history. Um, I'm not sure when history becomes history. 
And I'm aware that um, for, for some survivors, it, this might feel as though uh, this closer examination is, is at their expense. But, but even still, what, what, well, not overrides that, but what, what, you need, what you're considering is what you would see as you know, vital subject matter here that not only can be written about, but is important to people to, to read about and to be, to be aware of. I hope that's right. I mean, I, I think it is. I, I think that this is an ongoing story that we're living in an a, in an age, you know, which um, of of um, the the piracine as uh, Stephen Pine, who's the great ecologist and and writer on fire, as he has described it, a fire age. Our our climate is heating up. There, are, our fire seasons are extending, and as more people live in the urban bush. Uh, unfortunately, there are also more people who are, um, you know, expressing themselves or their grievances or their problems uh, through fire. Can I j- just press that a little bit further? Because one of the um, comments you make very early in the book, which struck me as, as, as a little frightening, is that you say that around only 1% of arsonists ever get caught. Yeah. So it makes them very dangerous but very elusive characters. Why do you think the, the, the conviction or the, the, you know, the recognition of who those people are is so low? Well, I think that it doesn't take very much to sort of find a lonely bush road and if you have a lighter in your pocket, um, you know, you can get away quickly. I think, I think that until Black Saturday... I think it's only been in the last ten or you know, ten years that we've taken this uh, threat more seriously, and lots of fires don't burn the way this one did. But the Australian Institute of Criminology uh, was asked to analyse sort of two hundred eighty thousand fires for the, the Royal Commission, and found that. of grass fires are suspiciously or maliciously lit and uh, further 35% are uh, accidental. And, I mean, it is worth saying that on Black Saturday of the 173 people who died, 161 died because of failings in our our electricity grid and, and power lines coming down. You know, and then that's an interesting too that it's not as though we you know, formed lynch mobs to go after, um, you know, the those uh, ultimately responsible for those fires. Although to jump ahead, one of the things that you report, and I, after, well, while reading the book I remembered this, that certainly um, when the alleged arsonist, at that stage alleged arsonist was, was arrested, there were almost lynch mob behaviours around the court, weren't there? Yeah, yeah, no, they, they arrested this guy, um, Brendan Sokolok, earlier than they would have liked to have done because they were scared that he was in danger. Yeah, and I think it's one of the great, and again, I'm jumping ahead, but it is one of the great qualities of the book is that, yeah, that's often seen, and I've, we've seen that sort of footage on television before of, of crowds chasing a, yeah. a prison van, and yeah. it's usually around someone who's committed a sex crime or yeah. something horrific yeah. like this. And there's a sort of that sort of that mob rule um, yeah. image. But at, at another level, when you consider what was happening around that time, for people who are already disempowered and marginalised, as you as you talk about that community, it's almost understandable that's all they have is their angry voice to respond with oh i mean the the 
the devastation of that fire is just so intense and um you know you you can understand the desire for 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 vengeance and and the rage okay i'm going to come back to that because i think it, again i want to talk about how um you deal you, you deal with that now so I'd like to move on and th- talk a little bit, just a little bit about the structure. So we've got what um, Chloe Hooper does in this book is that we, we have, we begin with an insight into the fire and what's occurred. There's some wonderful description and, and well, horrific description of what's happening when fires um, attack farms, etc. We have a, a, a section dealing with not only the perspective of the detectives, but getting a really close insight into how the detectives are working on the case, which I think was 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 fantastic. And then we look at the perspective of, of the lawyers, and in a sense we're looking both at the, the, the initial defence solicitor and the defence team around the case and, of course, the prosecution, and then you take us to this final act, which is played out um, in the courtroom. Can I again just start with a practical question? Is that I was this does relate though to your ability again? So that, yeah, in the book you'll get conversations that are held in the back of a, a police car or held in the back of a car when the defence team are, are taking Brendan back to the valley. At a practical level, were you working with written records, or it seems that you also had access to audio and some visual records? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. How did that work? <laughs> um, well, well, how did you gain the yeah, trust of yeah. of those involved, particularly yeah. the police yeah. force and the defence yeah. team, to use yes, that's to use those records? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I trying to get into a story is a bit like trying to get into a foreign country. You're sort of looking for an entry point, and um, this was really complicated. There was, you know, a lot of. I, I first I approached Brendan Sokolok's legal team and. Nobody um, on that side of the aisle wanted to talk to me. I tried then the the prosecutor and uh, finally I was led or I was given the name of the of the police officer who was the informant in the case and and I really thought that's going to go absolutely nowhere making this phone call. But I rang um, uh, Paul Bernancello who had you know a detective in the arson squad and I to my surprise he was actually quite interested in the idea of cooperating on a on a book about this case I then you know I was sort of slightly astonished but I had this uncomfortable moment where I then had to say look I've got to tell you my last book was about police corruption and uh, I thought well that's the end of that and um, actually he he said, well, that's not a problem for me. And, but I, there was this sort of excruciating process trying to get the um, Victoria Police to uh, give permission for everyone to speak. And that, that did come through. Then, then there was another sort of process getting, the, getting legal aid to, to talk. And those barristers and, and solicitors were prepared to talk after Brendan Sokolok and his, and his family both gave permission for them to speak. So they sent, they went in to see him in prison, and I believe that he didn't recognise his these these lawyers um, who had he'd spent days and you know weeks and months with. Um, they sent an independent lawyer in to to talk to him and ask for his permission, and he gave permission for them to speak. And so behind the scenes, there's an enormous amount of just a sort of administration and kind of, um, you know, attempt to sort of broker goodwill and 
Those those people probably regretted saying that they would speak to me because uh, you know you you mentioned the detail. I mean, I went back and spoke. I, I had I had some audio. I had some. St- I had written statements, but I also would go back and and um, in a sort of obsessive way ask them again and again. Do you remember this moment? What do you remember about this moment? And um, how did this feel? You know, where were you when this was happening? And um, and and they remembered things. You know, they remembered um, sometimes really poignant and beautiful things, which I uh, got to add in. And I just want to ask you a little bit about um, Brendan Sokolok's parents, because yeah, yeah, you you, you really feel for what they had to go through and, you yeah. know, they're living in a town where all this is happening. Yeah. Um, when I was about to leave tonight, I was listening to a new, the news and there was a, a news bulletin about a, a guy today who was convicted of, of, of running over a, a couple mm. and he was on drugs when he did yeah. it. Yeah. And the, they sounded like an older couple and the, the husband died Yes. and the wife was badly injured and they played a little vox pop of her on the news board and she said, well... He's going to prison for four or five years. I really hope he um, is able to cure himself of addiction and I really hope when he comes out he, he mm. makes a life for yeah. himself. And yeah. So there's an incredible yeah. level of um, yeah. empathy. Yeah, that's, so that is amazing. When I um, was reading the book, I, I really felt for his parents yeah. that, that it is that terrible situation where they love their son mm. and at the same time they have to contemplate the possibility of this dreadful yes. crime. Yeah. How, how were they... How did they feel about you doing the book? Oh, they would prefer that I had not written this book. But if I was going to do it, they wanted to have, you know, Brendan's side of the story told accurately. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think perhaps they also feel that if it wasn't me, it might have been somebody else who wasn't so interested in finding out some of those nuances. And when you say they'd rather the book wasn't written, is that because of simply dredging up the past of this issue or that you could write something that would condemn him even further? Uh, I think it's been extremely difficult for them to... I mean, they made a decision that they were there were death threats that they received and they decided that if they ran, they would have to keep running. So they still, you know, they, they lived in the house which um, that, where they raised Brendan uh, they live well. This book is set in the Latrobe Valley, uh, Churchill, the town that they came from or come from, is a, basically a, a dormitory suburb for power power workers. Mr. Sokolok worked in Hazelwood as a as a trimmer, loading coal onto the conveyor belts and um, sweeping up spills. Um, so, you know, the, I mean, they're really in the shadow of that, grew up really in the shadow of that power station, swimming in the in the coolant water. I mean, that's the pondage where everyone went to. There was no swimming pools, so that's where, where people swam. And, I mean, there are, you know, a variety of other power stations nearby. Um, they, It's been really tough for them to live in the town, and so I think, you know, it was a feeling of, of dredging things up. Interestingly, I also became close to... Uh, a woman called Shirley Gibson, who I write about in this book, and she lost two sons in the fire. She wrote to um, the Sokoloks to say, you know, I have adult children and I know that I'm not 
responsible for any good or bad that they do in the world and I hope you don't feel responsible. Shirley's also now gone on the record. Um, there's an Australian story being produced about, about this, this case and um, I watched her do an interview last week where she said similar, in a similar vein to the, the couple you're talking about, I forgive him for what he did. I don't believe that he meant to kill my children and I hope when he gets out of jail that he manages to make something out of his life. So she sort of talked about, I mean, she felt murderous rage and... Um, and and really hated him. Just, although she says that was a word I never I never liked to use, and she felt that was sort of eating her up. So actually, I mean, it is incredibly powerful to be able to forgive. Not that I, you know, I know that there are some who can't do that, and um, I understand why. Yeah, the, you end with the the book with that, and again, I was thinking about that. You know, to for for people, some people that they need to be able to do that for themselves to. To survive. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask another technical question in a way, yeah. and I did do some research on you and, and this book already and talking about um, some of the scenes that I've talked about that take place, and I've got them listed here. Yeah, there's some wonderful landscape writing stuff in, in, in Brendan's home, his own home, um, uh, conversations in the back of cars, as, as I've mentioned, um, the, the, the courtroom exchanges. Talked about as a recreation, but my, my feeling is that well, it's actually creating its own self. But I'm really interested in here, and I'd love to talk about it as embellishment. When you're piecing together or, or recreating or, or, or creating a scene, to what extent do you feel as a writer you need to govern yourself or to what extent do you feel there's, there, there's a way that you can create an impression of, of a past event, but there's a point at which that recreation could become something more. I, I really try to hold back from the something more mm -hmm. because I'm not writing fiction. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. So it's interesting you say because <laughs> when, when I used to teach nonfiction, yes. students used to want to argue day, day and night yeah. about, you know, so if I use you as yes. my devil, as an sure. example, people say, well, you know, Chloe Hooper's recreated this scene. We don't really know if it exactly happened this way. Um, she could be making stuff up. And I used to always say, who would be the first person to know <laughs> if stuff might be made up? And they go, I don't know who. I'd say the writer. And yeah. then I'd say, well, the writer of the yes. calibre of Chloe Hooper wouldn't do that. And they say, oh, how do you know? They wouldn't do that because... If you're a fiction writer and a non-fiction yes. writer, you yeah, don't want yeah. your non-fiction to mimic no. your fiction, do you? Oh, well, I mean, I don't, uh, you know, look, I, I, people would often say, how did you get, you know, do you remember that dialogue? And I would, I would have a tape recorder with me all the time. So, you know, I knew that there was a sort of, that was a record of what was going on. You must have to have a good ear for those, what you call those <laughs> poignant moments when people are, when you ask people yes, to remember something, yes, that's yeah. they're the yeah. quality moments that you, you want do, to you get do. on the plate. I mean, and that's the sort of sometimes you can have a very. Um, well, there was one moment with the defence barristers where they were being so loyally and careful about what they were saying. You know, the the interview was just going nowhere. And I've had this experience a lot when you're interviewing somebody. You know, you think, "There's no, I'm not getting anything here. This isn't going to work out. And then just at sort of, you know, even right at the end, there can just be some moment where where you, you feel that you're in that place with them. And um, basically they admitted that when they went to say goodbye to Brendan after the trial was finished, they realised that he hadn't 
it hadn't he hadn't clocked that it was over that that he'd been found guilty and um, the devastation of basically he was diagnosed post-arrest as being on the autism spectrum and having an intellectual disability and feeling that they were leaving behind a child. And, you know, there was this moment um, where suddenly that their humanity was revealed. Uh, there's a sort of heat that I think you feel in an interview when you're talking to somebody where you, you've got close to something. And if they're prepared to share that with you and, and talk more about it, that's... Um, then you're sort of onto something. One of the other things you write about is at the conclusion of the case and, the, and at the c- conclusion of a lot of criminal cases that the defence lawyers and the prosecutors and the police, they can yes. shake hands, yeah, we're on yeah. to the next case. Yeah. But one of the... Um, what you write about here is actually there was a lot of animosity yeah, between right. the police was, was or the police certainly amount. towards the defence yeah. team and yeah. I'm not sure to what extent it was returned. It was. I mean, they, they, they felt that on both sides. So the question I, I was thinking of as I'm reading here is mm. that you're thinking about how you approach this, you want to approach it in good faith and you want the, the you know whoever you're working with and talking to to accept you on good faith. How did you negotiate that? I mean, were, were there times at which you had to challenge yourself about where your your emotions or your biases might have been leaning, or are you cold and cool enough that you can skate <laughs> down the middle? Uh, look, I mean, I, you know, I think when you're talking with anybody, you sort of listening to their point of view, and and you're 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 wrapped up in their story. I mean, they they really hated each other. They they hated each other, and um, they were both sides were incredibly impressive. These really diligent and um, driven lawyers who felt that they had arrested a cunning serial firelighter, and these very diligent and and clever lawyers who believed that they were defending a man who may have been innocent, who um, was childlike and bewildered and and needed a lot of help to get through the legal process. So uh, let's, let's get on to that now because you, you've mentioned it twice and I, I'd, I'd noted it that the defence lawyers said at one point he was like a a cornered child who would a cornered act, a child, cornered child yeah. who would act yeah. out. Yeah. So act out defensively when uh, you know a child feeling frightened or under threat. Yeah. And in some senses that you know as the the, the arguments about there are arguments about his autism, but clearly yeah. he'd suffered many years of bullying and yeah. abuse and ridicule. And what struck me about him is that. You know, he could be referred to because of this as a simple-minded character, but the thing that struck me, he's an incredibly complex character mm. and a frustrating character because yeah. you talk about in relationship to those first taped interviews where his persona completely mm. changes and the police see that as manipulative. Yeah. But I tend to think, well, not, <laughs> but the fact is... He, He's an incredibly complex mm, character yeah. to deal with, wasn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, he does seem like a kind of, I mean, in the, you know, I think that there's a line that one of the lawyers uses in the old days, he would be, you know, termed a simpleton or, you know, she said, from on high. But he he kind of had a reputation to be blunt as, as being the village idiot. And um, there, it's unclear whether or not sometimes he actually... Um, used that persona when he was in trouble and there's a kind of good chance that he did 
Because his behaviours, because he worked as a, 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 well, a, grounds, a gardener a or a groundsman at Monash yeah. for many years. He did. And he had very, well, there's a lot of people who behave peculiar at universities, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> he had quite peculiar behaviours, what we might call sort of really quite antisocial behaviours yeah. as well. One day yeah. he would follow yes. people to their car and he would say, I know where you live, I'm going to blow you up. And, yeah, yeah. I know yeah. I, I've got relatives who've got a... Um, you know, I can get dynamite, I'm going to come and blow you up. I mean, that does sound like a kind of, you know, he, he loved watching children's cartoons. That's one of the mm. things his lawyers told me. His main areas of conversation were um, fast food, uh, kids' television, and his dog, uh, who he loved very much. But, you know... His dog was a girl but called Brocky, after Peter Brock, wasn't That's it? right, yeah. Yeah. But he, I think you're right. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a sort of really complicated... Um, uh, person and I, I think that that you know it made me understand a little bit more about what it it might be to be neuro atypical in this world and um, that he had a whole um, lot of sensory challenges and uh, emotional and intellectual I mean you know difficulties which are connected to being to living on the spectrum and and in this way he was profoundly misunderstood yeah, and I, I think that I think the other thing about about autism can be that you know you have a fluctuating scale of abilities mm. and that you know there was there was this sort of comment that was made about him that he was better than anybody else on computers or mm. you know he could do these things incredibly well he had an amazing visual sense and so therefore you know that those who worked with him found that very difficult to understand why he might know exactly where a cable or pipe was buried on the on the grounds mm. of the university and yet, you know, he couldn't do other things. He did things, at, other things at such an impaired level and I think that that made yeah. it, it harder to understand him or, as well. Or draw aerial maps of the town having yeah. never flown over it, yes. which I thought was amazing. Now, after this question, I've got a couple of short questions. So if you've got questions from the audience, please start to, to gather your thoughts. But I reckon the most profound question that, I was left with reading the book, it is about responsibility. And there is one aspect of responsibility, and you've just touched on it. So to what extent might, might we say that um, he is responsible for what he did or not responsible for what he did considering his, his autism? So there's a lot of discussion about whether he is culpable, whether he is aware of what he's done, and certainly the police would see him as manipulative. But there was another question that, that really, it didn't puzzle me, it was that nagging. I kept thinking, what's our responsibility? It might sound odd. I thought, well, what's my responsibility to, to someone like Brendan? What's our responsibility to someone who you know, was, was convicted and you said that you, you think that he lit yes. the fires? Yeah. He's convicted of it. And I think it is clear that he, he, he is intellectually disabled. So therefore, as a, as a society, yeah. what is our responsibility, not only to, to people like, like Brendan, but also what's our responsibility to a person even after having committed such an act? Yeah. Because one of the things that we know, and certainly I know, is that if you're looking for people to be adequately rehabilitated and to re-enter society, prisons are not a great place mm. to do that. So... I think there's a big question in this book about how we f feel that we should respond to these terrible events other than 
yeah, let, let's lock him up and never let him out or let's chase a van down the street and scream at him because that would offer no solution to the potential of something like this happening again. That was, that's a really big question and um, I guess everybody will answer that in a different way. And uh, I think that Brendan probably was somebody who, you know, if you, if you kind of, if he started making conversation with you at the bus stop, you would, you know, possibly um, look at your watch and, and uh, realise you had somewhere you've got to go. And um, that's one way that we sort of people who have issues become more isolated. With that in mind, so I've got two more questions. Okay. So you, you kept out of the book until the coda. Yeah. And part of me thinking, part of me was thinking, I don't want the coda. I, do, I, I want the John Hersey Hiroshima. But <laughs> Sorry about that. No, because then you, you introduced us to Shirley in yeah. that, which yeah. is such, the woman whose sons had died, and I thought yeah. that was so important. But the other thing that you admit to or yeah. is that you, you, you got in touch or you wanted to get in touch with Brendan yes, and you wanted yes, to did. go and interview yeah, him. Yeah. What motivated you to want to speak to to him? Oh, well, I mean, I'd been thinking about him for, you know, a couple of years, a bit like Chris Hurley in The Tall Man. You'd prefer to be able to talk to everybody. And in the end, you know, he's – I would like to have a a look at the puzzle myself. Ironically, when I was in the Valley with this Australian story crew, um, the the sound guy actually had filmed a segment for Better Gardens and and he'd been at the Marlborough unit – where in which is at Port Phillip Prison, the high security prison, where it's a unit for intellectually disabled prisoners, where Brendan was residing, and there's a garden program there that, that they run, and Brendan followed them around all day, yeah. and they um, the warden said, oh, you know, he's got he can grow anything. This guy, he's yeah. got sort of you know, magic hands, and it's terrible irony in that, isn't it's, it? It's unbelievable. What would you have said to him? Oh. I don't know that I'd have said anything. I think I'd have just listened to what he had to say. Okay. So the last question, I mean, and this, I know the Guardian article on you wanted to be a pain to say this is not a book about climate change. Which, oh, it's a, climate, it's a book about climate change. Yeah. yeah but, no, it is a book about climate change. But <laughs> the interesting thing there is that I, doing the research and you've travelled back up there, one of the things that has, has, has troubled me over the years, and again, this partly is my experience of being a firefighter before yeah. I went to university. Yeah. But I remember in the months after the fires, there was a lot of – there was big statements about what we're going to do, how things are going to change. Mm. And we know that there have been now new models of building houses that are so-called, mm. so-called fireproof, mm. et cetera. But my, my feeling is that actually we, we – even though you talk about we're more aware of the what arsonists can do and the danger of them, mm. do you think we're – do you think we are conversant enough in the, the, the terrible violence and ferocity of a, what a fire can do? Because part of me thinks that we, we, we return to a, a, a situation of complacency. Yes, we do. Um, you know, we're, we're, we, we have suburban minds and um, it's very hard to wrap, wrap your head around these feral fires. But, I mean, you know... I guess the coda is partly just because I um, I wanted to talk about the power stations of uh, that that are that are all around this area where the the story is set, and you know here 
here everybody was living on the largest brown coal fields in the world, which, and of course, this coal is this volatile combustible substance that we then cut out of the ground and, and burn. And in a way, you know, the protagonists of this story grew up surrounded by fire. But also, you know, these power stations kind of provide the perfect conditions for for the imperfect storm. Yeah, yeah and, and that is, I mean, that is the, the link because I, I was nursing the book and I don't usually watch Q&A, but Jeffrey Sachs was on Q&A last night, The Economist, talking about coal and its complete it's, it should be a redundant fuel and talking yeah. about what we're doing in Australia. And so there is... there is. Well, also, I mean, the idea that it's, it's, a, it's cheap fuel when mm. Hazelwood's got a billion-dollar, um, you know, clean-up budget yeah. is interesting. Okay, so um, I finish my formal interrogation <laughs> of, um, of Chloe. So um, Come on forward. We've got a... I'm going to hand my... So I'm not allowed to talk anymore. Chloe, what did Brendan do that day? Uh, Brendan, um, Brendan was a man who loved routine and he had a routine every Saturday morning. His father, he'd pick up his father and they would go and they'd look, they both loved cars, so they'd go into Morwell and Taralgon and they'd, they would go to Super Cheap Auto and Autobahn and Bunnings and look for, um, car, car parts and, uh, they went to KFC. They went to the TAB and laid some bets. They went to Kmart. On the way home, they saw a grass fire burning near a briquette factory and they stopped to watch that, as everybody else was. Who knows what Brendan sort of thought at that moment. He, he went home and he dropped off his father. His car was running badly in the heat. His father told him not to drive any further. He went inside to his house and he got into some sort of sturdier clothes, went around the corner to the IGA and bought a packet of cigarettes and 15 minutes later, oh, he drove to the, he drove towards the plantation where he, he collected scrap metal. He claimed to be looking for scrap. Um, 15 minutes after buying the cigarettes, the witnesses saw two smoke of two fires and um, because it was such a horrendous day, the local firefighters were um, in their uniforms waiting to get on the truck and actually he'd seen that as he, as he drove towards the plantation. He had been 20 years earlier kicked out of the CFA and whatever it was he did, um, he called the fire in. The police wondered whether or not he'd actually hidden to watch the emergency response. That's sort of unclear. And he um, drove a bit further on. His car broke down and uh, he got a lift out of the fire zone. Uh, he was seen by neighbours sitting on his roof watching the, watching the hills basically burn around the, the town. And um, four, four days later he was arrested. You said he was kicked out of the CFA 20 years ago. How old was he? Okay, so he was... Um, had left school in year 11 and he was unable to read or write and um, he 
would have joined the CFA around at, uh, 18 years old. They, the police found a the CFA captain at the time was the, the local copper. The arson squad found him in Queensland as, uh, driving a bus and um, he reckoned that he had, he was kicked out of the CFA because they, they noticed that suddenly he was appearing at fires which he couldn't otherwise have known about and, and that the number of fires was sort of in the district was, was going up. And um, they they claimed that they had a sort of chat with him, and he admitted and, and was thrown out. But but in the CFA records, it just talks about um, dishonest conduct, and um, no one went to his parents and said, you know, this boy's got a problem. There were rumours in the community that he was a firebug, and it, it is you know the the police find that often communities do know who it is that's light, that lights fires, but. He wasn't put on any watch list or anything. Yeah, can I? Oh, no, just um, ask a question about that because one of the things that you, you write about in the book, in fact, is that um, people may not be aware, aware of this, is that you know, he's, he wasn't a lone arsonist and what does happen on days of total fire ban or high-risk days is, in fact, that a lot of arsonists in an area will come under surveillance and be yeah. for the for the day or days to to keep yeah. a check on them and what they're doing yeah that's right they were they did have a number of i mean when they uh, when the arson squad arrived in churchill the next day um they sort of cracked open their books and they had the name of 30 different of different firebugs you know which is not it's not a huge community that's pretty pretty extreme but I mean this is something that they find that that on the edge of um, bushland in communities with high unemployment um, that's where these fires get started and um, um, I'm sorry I just saw some people wriggling and thought god we've been talking for a long time thank you for being so attentive but yes we is, we got one more because I'm happy well take two more so here and here so mine is very quick you obviously went to speak to Brendan why were you not allowed to because he didn't want to speak to you? No, I, I think he probably did want to speak. I don't think he's actually had very many visitors in prison. He, the, the prison basically said that they were not going, they didn't have the sort of facilities to let me in. And if I didn't go in with um, his family or a, a lawyer, there was sort of no, no chance and legal aid weren't going to take me in and his family didn't want to do that either. So one's a comment and one's a question. So years ago my father was at an agricultural college right. and they were all required to be part of the local firefighting brigade and they realised it was one of their students who, who on days of high extreme he was yeah. lighting small fires and as a community they made sure that he couldn't get out on those days. So mm. they sort of looked after wow. him for a time. So mm. I guess then that leads into my question is that during the court case, how, how um, aware was the, the judge made of this person's competency and ability to really take responsibility for his actions? That's a, that's a great question. That there, were, there were a number of psychiatric assessments um, of Brendan and even one of the reasons, it took three years for the case to reach trial and one of those reasons was that there were so many kind of um, checks around whether or not he was actually competent to, fit, to, to stand trial. 
you know, right at the end, a few months before the case, you know, came to court, the Judge Paul Coughlin apparently watched him in the court in pre-trial hearings and again was concerned and, and, you know, he was again found fit to be tried. Lawyers want their clients to be found to be found fit because the alternative is sort of um, indefinite detention in a psychiatric prison. But that's a, such an interesting comment. I mean, on hot days, traditionally there just have been people who've, who who go out with with matches. And but it's so interesting that as a community, you know, your father's uh, in your father's time, we you kind of kept people sort of uh, less isolated perhaps. Yeah. I thought that was stunning revelation that you would rather someone be competent for trial and they could be found guilty but they'll spend less time in prison than they will if they're found incompetent. Yeah. And I mean this – and, you know, I mean I'm, I'm – this is one of the sort of my areas of ignorance. I didn't realise that the number of – I mean the legal aid lawyers told me that they were dealing with 50% of the clients who were reaching trial were intellectually – had some sort of intellectual disability or brain injury. So Brendan isn't actually a sort of uncommon uh, character in the law. Just an observation as well. Just, uh, this is probably a little bit personal, but I sense a lot of sadness around this. What impact did this have on you, doing all this research and putting this together? Uh, Look, I I think that uh, crime stories in Australia are very, very often about dysfunction and disadvantage. And, um, you know, I could ask this question, why why would somebody light fires and... um, you know, the profile of an arsonist is often not that different from other people who commit crimes, and that's they're folk who have um, poor social networks, poor work histories, uh, usually a, um, a history of family dysfunction, abuse, neglect. And so we're all wired to be fascinated by fire. I mean, that's how we've evolved as humans, in lockstep with fire. And, um, you know, what my, my initial fascination, I guess, led me into areas that were more sort of complicated and sometimes darker than I wanted to go. But, you know, you, as a writer, it's a kind of luxury and sometimes a sort of slightly cursed luxury that that's, that's the rabbit hole you're going down. Okay. Yeah. So Collie has, has given us a lot of her time. So you're going to give her about, I think, about two ninety nine. Your ten percent works out at. But um, it's not, no obligation. I just want to say, um, obviously, Chloe is here. But Peter to, has come out in the rain. Yeah, so actually, yes. yeah. <laughs> Chloe is here to to obviously talk to you further and to sign books over in the corner there. Um, I do. Um, you're not going to leave us now, are you? I am shortly. Um, I do think it is. It is a, a remarkable book. I'm not. I wasn't surprised, as I said at the outset. And I think all of us reading this book, we we will ask a lot of questions about arson. But I really think there's there are questions that we also ask about ourselves as, as a society, and how we confront the difficulties, the grave difficulties that you you raise in this book, both in regard to a future of you know a hotter, more combustible landscape that surrounds this city but also in relationship to to how we we regard each other and how we may try to prevent these things occurring when we know that you know the very people who are a potential danger to us are also incredibly vulnerable Vulnerable themselves and that comes out very strongly so can you please thank chloe so much thank you thanks so much for coming out on a wet night thank you 
That was Chloe Hooper in conversation with Tony Birch on October 22nd, 2018. We run regular author talks and discussions at all branches of Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on the website. For you, we'd recommend Troll Hunting, where journalist Ginger Gorman will discuss her in-depth investigation of internet trolling, who does it, and ways to fight back. You'll find that discussion at Bagungunangian at North Fitzroy Library on March 14th. If you're now keen to read The Arsonist, or any of Chloe and Tony's other books, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries promises not to shush you, unless you really deserve it. Happy reading!